Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. My guest for the hour is Susan Imhoff Bird. Her new book out from Tory House Press is Howl of Woman and Wolf. At a crossroads in her own personal life, she was drawn to wolves and set out to explore the passions and controversies surrounding nature's most fascinating predator. She shares her personal triumphs, her self-doubt, and difficult scenes from her past, caring for a son with cerebral palsy whose blue eyes won't meet her own, stripping wallpaper with a husband whose hidden layers have built up a barrier, a long, dark night of pain while recovering from a severe bicycle accident. Along the way, she interviews ranchers and park personnel, wolf watchers, biologists and families, uncovering a range of emotions, from admiration and reverence to wolves to vitriol and anxiety toward wolves and all that they have come to signify. And uh, Susan Imhoff-Bird finds inspiration in Utah's stunning canyons, valleys, and water-sculpted rock. She's a mother of three, owner of a gratitude-based business, and she's fascinated by human interactions. When not riding, reading, trying to meditate, or attempting yoga asanas, she can be found on her bicycle or snowshoes, snowshoes rather. And the website is SusanImhoffBird.com. Susan Bird joins us in studio. Thanks. Thank you. Thanks for coming up. You live in Salt Lake? I do. Area. A uh, fascinating book. Um, I'd like to jump right in, have you read uh, just a couple of paragraphs from the, the very first page. You set the scene. You're on a bike ride. I'm, I guess that's that's quite often with you. Yes, that riding. is quite often. <laughs> I'm on my bike, and it's, uh, it's the end of winter, and it's kind of a ritual that I do that has to do with my son who's passed away. And you're on a road. It's it's as you say. It's it's the end of winter, but not quite melted. And you've ridden up to a place where it's the farthest you can go because right. the, the rest is snowed in. Right. And, uh, so, I'll have you read this for you? Okay. I dismount. Snow covers the road and lies on gray branches and leans against boulders. It clings to clumps of autumn's late grasses. I walk my bike from the last clear patch of asphalt to the road's edge. I lean it against the trunk of a gnarled scrub oak, its bark cracked and scarred. Below my handlebars, attached by a loop of zip tie, dangles a small metal cylinder. The container is just over two inches tall, an inch in diameter. I peel off my gloves to unscrew the lid. I hold the open tube and walk to the snowy edge of the road where scrub oak grow thickly down the hill. I shake some of Jake's ashes into my hand, then send them floating out over the crusty snow. I love you, Jake. I miss you. He is everywhere here. I walk to the other side of the road where the red dirt hillside soars and scatter the rest of the ashes over the scarlet earth, the snow patches, a stream of meltage running in the berm. He's been gone three years and three months. He would have turned 22 today. He is 22. This is my third observance of this ritual, my solitary ceremony, me, Jake, we meet here, surrounded by what appears dormant, but is filled with life. Moose and deer stand motionless, hidden by willows and pines, as though they honor this quiet ceremony. A beaver silences its gnawing. A squirrel pauses. A magpie gazes my way and keeps its peace. All I hear is trickling water. Even the wind has calmed its constant whistle through bare branches. These gray trees, not a bud in sight, will burst into thousands of leaves unfolding with green life in mere weeks. I breathe in crisp air, then let it go. The silence is broken by birdsong, a solo. The canyon walls press, constrict. My lungs no longer burn, but my chest aches. A whisper, somewhere else, go, leave, head north, true north. 
When I married Daniel eight months ago, I thought we would share this, that he'd be here beside me. But instead, I am more alone than before. I ache today for Jake. But I'm devastated by my failure to create the relationship I crave and need, the profound connection I thought was finally in my life. I sprinkle ashes. I write Jake's name with my finger in the snow at the edge of the road. Hmm. Uh, Tell me a little bit about uh, Jake. Um, Jake was my first child. He was actually a twin, and uh, they suffered from twin-to-twin transfusion transfusion syndrome, which is quite rare, but usually one twin suffers. And uh, in my case, Jake's twin died right before I went into labor, and so Jake was born early. He suffered a severe cerebral cerebral hemorrhage, and as a result, he had uh, a number of challenges, including a seizure disorder and uh, quite severe cerebral palsy. Mm. Lived on for 22 years? Uh, 19. 19 years, okay. Mm -hmm. Oh, uh, 22, three years after, yes. (laughs) So 19 years and uh, a lot of difficulties, but joys as well with your... Yes. I mean, he uh, he loved to be held. He was a very uh, grace-filled child. Mm. And uh, he brought a lot to many, many lives, mine included, but it was also, you know, the challenge of not being able to really connect with a human being that you love is yeah. difficult. That's a theme, I think. You, you, you <laughs> make a reference to, to Daniel there. Right. You're not able to establish a connection with him. Right. Not as deep as I needed. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. Um, you're at a crossroads. I don't know if you realize this when you, when you set out to, to go in search of the wolf. Probably not. Mm-hmm. I probably wasn't quite so aware of how. I, I knew that the marriage was a challenge and not working in the way I needed it to, but I didn't realize just how how prevalent this crossroads was across not just marriage but other issues. Mm-hmm. So tell me about this project. I mean, you know, some of us might read about wolves and rate of reduction of wolves and the you know, Endangered Species Act and delisting or not of, of the wolf. You go, you go on a journey. I did. <laughs> what, where did that come from? Why, why did you want to do that? It actually was a suggestion of the publisher. They are an environmentally based publisher and concerned with issues of conservation in our landscape. And uh, they thought that uh, publishing a book about wolves would be something they wanted to do. And it just so happened they knew me, I was available, and they said, would you consider doing this? I said, sure. Mm-hmm. And his joke is then I went on to say, what's a wolf? <laughs> <laughs> right, right. And, of course, you, you, you can't be in the West without having wolves on your consciousness somehow, right? There's a controversy or right. you're a rancher and they're eating your sheep or, or you're you know, an environmentalist and wanting to, to protect them. Right. Tell me about your first sighting. You're in Lamar Valley. In Lamar Valley, it's uh, in June, and we are driving along the road and – seeing knots of cars and people uh, pulled off on the side and all these scopes on tripods, tripods and people with cameras. And and uh, and so as we're driving past, I'm getting anxious about, wait, maybe they're seeing something. We should stop. We should stop. But um, uh, the person who was driving kept on going. And finally, he pulled into a pullout and we stopped. And there were just, I don't know, 30 or 40 people there. And they were all focused on the valley. And and so I asked someone who uh, had a scope 
uh, set up. And I said, what are you looking at? And she said, oh, it's Middle Gray's daughter. <laughs> so these people know the wolves by name, by number. And uh, there was a wolf out in the valley uh, eating a bison, a baby bison carcass. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's, you know, that's this is nature. Yes. Right. Yes. The, the, uh, bison died that a wolf might live, uh, you know, eating eating this carcass. The other thing that strikes me about this, you, I guess you can go out to Lamar Valley and you know, set up a scope, and you're in the wild, kind of, but you, right. it's kind of like you're watching television as well, but you're watching nature. Right. What was your experience? Right. Um, I, I mean, it was so foreign to me. I had never done anything like this, and uh, there is that really uh, kind of surreal aspect of it that you're looking through this scope at something that's taking place hundreds of yards away, and... Uh, and yet, it's the closest you're probably ever going to get mm-hmm. to a wolf. Right. Quite elusive. Right. Right. Do you think that's what people, you know, then their cars lined up? You know, it gets hard to get down the road because everybody's pulled over and right. looking at this. What, what are they searching for? <laughs> well, that, that was actually, as I um, started doing the whole research for this project, um, they left it wide open. They said, you know, we want to write a book or we want to publish a book about wolves whatever comes to you. And so uh, I entered my research with that question, what is it that I find interesting in this? And what I came to uh, during that first month of exploring the whole issue was that I was curious about what it was that pulled us humans to that connection with wild. Why do we love that? Why do we need that? Why are people standing on the roadside looking through little teeny scopes at, at animals that are, you know, 300 yards away? And um, what it, uh, there's just something powerful in seeing that wildness. Just something, I guess, that speaks to us. It does. Right? Or at least most of it. I guess there are probably people who it doesn't speak to. but Right. But still, even the uh, one thing that came up, uh, we were talking about why people choose to live in the wilds of Montana, even the ranchers and hunters who aren't happy with the wolves, they still choose to live in a wild place, and they still love to hear that howl mm-hmm. in the dark of night. Yeah. What is it about that howl? You, <laughs> that's the title of your book, Howl. Right. right. Well, um, for me, the howl has to do with me rediscovering my voice and being able to acknowledge that I have a right to be here and my story is my story and mm. I get to own that. Um, but the howl itself is just fascinating. We actually met some uh, wolf biologists who are researching the howl and why it happens, how it happens, how they're different. And uh, no one has the answer. We mm. all think we know. Yeah. Well, let's hear a howl. We, uh, we went to the internet and uh, Bennett got a, got a howl for us. So let's, let's hear this. There's there's a lot going on there. It's it's I, I could imagine myself out in the wild, unprotected. That would be chilling. 
Definitely. And I imagine many people over millennia have felt that experience, <laughs> right. uh, that emotion. Right. What, what went your, through your mind as you heard that? Oh, I just got chills. And I, I do every time. Mm-hmm. What, what's behind the chills? What do you? Oh, it's just some, um, I just think it's a deeply innate reaction to um, another sentient being. Mm. There's a reason for that, Howell. And it's a communication. And I, I think, you know, we just don't have all the tools to understand it, but we yeah. want to. And there are people studying. Definitely. Why wolves howl and what, what, what the meaning is. Right. It's hard not to anthropomorphize. A- absolutely. And yet sometimes we do it. I, right. don't, I don't know what your reaction is. Well, I, I read something wonderful uh, just a few months ago. I wish I could remember the author where she, uh, she was talking about that very process of how we anthropomorphize. And she said it's actually quite selfish of us and naive of us to not. Mm. Really? Yeah. To not. Mm-hmm. She wants more of a connection? Well, so I think she's saying, who are we to say that these creatures are not thinking, loving, creative, intelligent beings? Mm-hmm. How, yeah. You know, we're, we're being uh, superior in, in saying that, oh, they can't have thoughts like that. Right. Uh, and a part of it's the mystery, right? We right. don't know, and I don't know if we can know. Right. right. Uh, even if you stick an electrode on a wolf's brain, you, you, you We'll know. never know. Um. Tell me about uh, 06. Is it 06? 06 is, uh, yes, was one of the most famous wolves in the park in the in the last decade, I think. And uh, her name is actually because she was born in 2006. And uh, she became an alpha female of a pack and was killed when she left the park on what we assume was probably a hunting expedition. And she was outside park borders and legally shot by a hunter. 15 miles out outside uh, but, the borders, yeah. Mm-hmm. And the, the the alpha male, I think, was also killed. Right, exactly. Uh, and, and his months. brother. So the, the the pack was, I don't know, in, in distress. Yeah. Right, decimated. And it took them a while to reform, which happens a lot yeah. when an alpha is killed. Now, uh, I guess absent humans, wolves would be at the top of the chain, <laughs> would they? Uh or do they have predators? Well, they don't specifically have predators, but a grizzly is pretty powerful and okay. can rule the environment. Mm-hmm. I think they kind of co, they'll share that right. top of right. the food chain position. And again, it's its emotions come in, right? I, I don't know. For example, you talked to ranchers, did you? I did, a few. What, what are their feelings? Um, it. I think it really varies. And most that I met and conversed with were willing to work, work it out. And uh, my favorite uh, conversation with one of the ranchers in, outside of Missoula, he was complaining about uh, the elk, and then he was complaining about the eagles, and then he was complaining about the wolves. So, you know, they're going to complain about mm-hmm. anything that, that is a hassle and a problem and that will kill their livestock. Uh, it's, a, it's an economic loss. Right. Lose your livestock. Right? right. And they work on very slim margins. You can mm-hmm. understand it. But a, a lot of communities are working very hard to um, to solve the issue and to work with uh, wildlife departments in their states to have things like range riders and using fladry, which can uh, scare off a wolf, the flattering flags, mm-hmm. <laughs> and, uh, and eliminating bone piles where they yeah. just leave carcasses around. Of course, that's going to attract a predator. Yeah. Uh, what's the attitude of the people, uh, for example, you know, telescoping 
the wolves in Lamar Valley. What's oh. what, what do they think about hunting and protection? Well, I would say some of them um, could actually be on the um, the extreme of wolf protection and believing that any hunting is wrong. Um, most, though, I would say, just have such incredible respect for the wildlife that they want it protected to the extent that it can be. They would like to see buffers around the park edges so that, you know, animals from the park won't be killed as they travel, you know, those 5, 10, 15 miles outside. Mm-hmm. Let's take a break. When we come back uh, more with uh, Susan Imhoff Bird, her book out from uh, Tory House Press is uh, Howl of Woman and Wolf. And uh, at a uh, a sensitive time in her life, she set out to study the wolf and our attitudes toward wolves, uh, took a trip uh, to Yellowstone and other areas, talked to a lot of people, and and took a personal journey as well. We'll talk about both of those. When we come back, I want to have uh, Susan Bird uh, read a bit from, uh, she imagines the ancient wolf millions of years ago and connects us uh, to today. More following the break. The Be Well Moment is made possible by the USU Department of Human Resources Wellness Program at usu.edu hr. Getting all the nutrients you need on a daily basis can be a difficult task. Incorporating multivitamins can help you get those key nutrients into your diet. Get the right vitamin that includes 100% of the recommended daily allowances and includes all of the recommended vitamins and minerals. Take the pill that's right for you. Vitamins are found in smaller pills, chewables, or powders. Eat something. Take vitamins with food can help avoid getting an upset stomach. Keep track of what you take. This can help you keep track of over or under consumption of specific vitamins. Taking a multivitamin can give your body the nutrients it lacks, keep you healthy by growing, healing and repairing cells, improve your immune system, keeping you bone and heart healthy, and giving you an overall sense of balance and wellness. This is Nicole Jackson with the Be Well program at Utah State University. Remember to live well, work well, and be well. Programming on Utah Public Radio was made possible in part by our members and Pat Sadowski, Cash Valley Senior Consulting, offering home safety evaluations to promote independent living. Information at cvseniorconsulting.com or 435-770-8272. Thanks for listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. I'm talking with Susan Bird. Her new book out is Howl of Woman and Wolf. Uh, She's drawn to the wolf's resilience and innate sense of place, and she discovers important personal truths and desires as she learns once more about these often misunderstood uh, creatures. And she sets out on this journey to crossroads in her own life. Uh, The uh, death of uh, her son, who uh, died at 19, Uh, he had cerebral palsy, uh, a relationship uh, breaking up, and... uh, and just on a personal journey, we'll connect those two things up as well. And talking about the wolf, of course, if you would like to join this conversation, it's 1-800-826-1495, 1-800-826-1495. Our email is upraxcess at gmail.com, upraxcess at gmail.com. Uh, I'd like to hear your personal experience. Maybe you've had experience with wolves. Maybe you're perfecting your own personal howl. Um, Susan Bird is. Um, and we heard uh, uh, a howl earlier in the program. And you can join us on Twitter. We're at Utah Public Radio. 
Uh, Susan Bird, I wonder if you could read, uh, this is from page seven, and you go back a million years <laughs> for, for the wolf at that time. Right. A million years ago, a blink of the earth goddess's eye, the dire wolf lived in North America. From matter had come insectivores and creodents. As time passed and each evolved, the ancestors of animals on earth today emerged. They lived in a world untamed, rocky hills and uplifted moraines, flowering plants, scrubby grasses. Conifers, dense and dark, covered the land. Screeches split the air, howls echoed. Thundering hooves, death screams as prey lost to predator. Not a word spoken, just lapping of wind-blown water, splashing creeks, the steady drum of rain on dusty soil. The dire wolf, toes splayed wide, trots between far-flung trees, seeking her pack. Separated during the last hunt, distracted by a stream, seduced by her thirst, she trails the others by half a mile. In the far distance are moving bodies, and she increases her speed. Maybe they've closed in on a bison. Maybe they need her. The pack works together, sometimes as many as 20, 30, trapping a horse or bison, then attacking, their teeth razor sharp and quick to draw blood. Five feet long, from nose to tail, her shoulders are more than two feet from the earth, and she weighs 115 pounds. Her mate is ahead, but she's drawing near. A bison is besieged. He butts the wolves with his huge head, unable to stop them from tearing at his flanks. She reaches the pack and jumps at the dark animal's rear leg, her teeth ripping skin and muscle to scar the bone underneath. When the bison topples, the wump of his body hitting earth vibrates beneath her feet and echoes across the rim-rocked plateau. Then you go on to talk about the gray wolf and how the gray wolf came in and, and supplanted the dire wolf. But there's a continuity here for millions of years. Right. Um, that precedes humans. Definitely. And may come after us. <laughs> is, is that that connection? Well, that's important. That, that's part to, of the fascination? That's a, uh, very important to me. I think uh, the argument about having wolves back on our landscape, uh, to me, very much comes down to they have a right to exist. They were here before us. You know, we chose to get rid of them. And uh, I, I don't know that... Um, I don't believe that that was the right thing to do, and I just believe they have. There's an inherent right to exist, mm -hmm. and we did get rid of them, didn't we? We, we did. We sometimes forget that that history because of the, this was a reintroduction, right? Twenty years ago, or whatever it was, right? Right. We had uh, killed off most of the wolves, uh, what they call extirpated them by. About the 1920s, some places might have still had one around 1940, a few wolves remain uh, upper Wisconsin and uh, Canada still had plenty of wolves, so sometimes they would trickle across the border. But for the most part, the pioneers just wiped them out. Mm -hmm. uh, they were seen as a nuisance, a, a mm -hmm. pest, a, oh, definitely. a, a danger to you know, livestock and, right. and, and to life. To life, they thought. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so what about, and I'm sure you get this question, why, what is about the wolf? Why not the grizzly bear? And there are who some who connect to grizzly bear, the eagle, you know, whatever. What is it about the wolf? I would say that uh, the early uh, Native American peoples tamed some wolves and kept them as pets. And, you know, today we have our dogs. And when you think about the relationship that people have with their pets, with their dogs especially, there's something really 
Um, it's a powerful connection for a great number of people. And so the wolf is a canine. And I think there, uh, there's just always been some kind of bond between man and canine. And the wolf is a canine. So I think mm-hmm. that, you know, there's, there's just something... Again, you know, it's really inexplicable. I don't, mm-hmm. I don't think that any of us could take apart our DNA and find the place that says, "Oh, I like canines," right. but it's there. Yeah, we, uh, they are a dog. They are <laughs> dog right. family. Yeah, <laughs> and there, are, there's an ancient connection, I guess, what you say between so. humans and dogs. I think so. I want to talk about more of the connection between your personal story and, and your journey with wolves. In fact, you, uh, as you recount the, the birth of your twins, um, you note that that's about the time of the reintroduction of, of the wolf. Right, which is... So all the time that your son Jake is alive, you know, that this whole controversy with wolves is, is ongoing. Right. Then you embark on this personal journey. How do you connect those those two up? Did, and, and what did you get out of it in the end? Well, I think what was powerful for me is that uh, I was researching an animal that was really just trying to be itself. It it The wolf has a... I mean, he's a predator, he, she. Uh, they are a predator, and they tend to be top of the food chain. They have a nature that that it's their job to live out. And I found myself drawn to that because I think I have struggled in much of my life trying to be what everyone else wanted me to be. And yet I have this nature that says, no, I want to be this. But I've uh, had to squash that for a number of different reasons, including, you know, some of my childhood um, and then marriage and then having a, a child with so many needs and uh, and then another failed marriage. And and so there were, there were all these pressures that I took upon myself to kind of squished who I needed to be. And so in my research, in uh, what I really learned is that this wolf is just trying to be a wolf. And he has a right to do that. And we need to support that and protect ourselves as, you know, is as appropriate. We don't want them obviously out killing all our cows and sheep. But there's a way to work this out. We all have the right to be who we're meant to be. And so as you say, you, you're working on your howl. That's the title, right? <laughs> yes. Tell me about that. I guess when you're alone, <laughs> because you're, I imagine you'd be self-conscious. Right. You, it, you actually howl? Um, I do. Mm-hmm. I do. Um, more likely when I'm out uh, on snowshoes. Uh, snow brings it out more than riding my bicycle. But um, there have been times on my bike when, I'm, when I know no one's in earshot mm-hmm. that I will try that. And what's, what's the howl? What are you expressing there? I think uh, there's a joyful, a joyful piece of it. Mm-hmm. I think that's probably the main part. Do you ever have wildlife or wolves respond? Or? I haven't yet. Mm-hmm. But what's been delightful in the last uh, this summer, we've had lots of coyotes up uh, Immigration Canyon, which is where I bike a lot. And so there've been um, at least a handful of mornings where I've heard them yipping and howling, and mm-hmm. and I'm too in awe to howl back because I just want to hear it. I don't want to add my own mm-hmm. voice, but it's a pretty wonderful sound. Do you prefer the wolf's howl to the coyote's howl? I do. It's deeper and a little more, I, I, you can pick up a mourning note to mm-hmm. it more than you do in a coyote. Yeah. What's, what is your, I guess, 
lesson sounds uh, too heavy, but what's what's your what do you suggest to others then if they want to find their own voice, their howl? Oh, I think it's really important to spend some time uh, in in quiet, and I think ideally outside somewhere, walking. Uh, somewhere where other people might not be around. And I, I think that, I, I hate to use this word, but commune, <laughs> to commune with nature a little bit. Uh, I think it really helps you ground into who you are and, and why why you, or how you want to show up in the world. Mm-hmm. I don't want to say why you're here, because who knows why, why we're all here. But I think that that quiet time spent alone in nature is a, a real gift for those of us who want to be a little more clear about our path. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, as I use the word howl, of course, you, I, I, at some point I connected with Allen Ginsberg. <laughs> right. I don't know if you <laughs> had those thoughts as you were at some point in your in your book. That's kind of the urban howl. you know. Right, right. I actually read a beautiful piece that uh, mentioned him not too long ago, and it said that uh, it described him as being uh, frank and unapologetic about who he was. And I've kept that with me, that that's a key part of, I think, what we're all meant to do is be frank and unapologetic about who we are. I I think that's what the wolf does. Mm -hmm. You know, it is what it is. Yeah. So part of this, uh, I could see, is casting off at least a bit of civilization, right? We're... We're, we're taught to, in social convention, some of us are taught or pick up the message that we're supposed to be who others want us to be. And we, sure. And of course, we, at some, uh, in some levels, have to, to fit into society. Right. Is this casting off the fetters? And, and how far <laughs> should we go? Oh, that's a good question. Um, I, I, I was raised to be nice, polite, and respectful, and I think those are all appropriate things that we can we can uh, keep in our uh, arsenal of tools <laughs> in how we deal with the world. But um, so I guess I would say I, I think it's really important to be true to your own self and nature and needs while remembering that you are a member of society. You're still part of a pack, part of a tribe, and there are you need to hone your behavior so that it's appropriate and helpful to the pack and the tribe. Mm. This might be a good time to bring in, and I have copied and pasted this. Um, I noticed in your acknowledgments, you talk about Doug Peacock. This is your acknowledgment. Doug Peacock, by inviting me into his home, scared and delighted me. (laughs) (laughs) I'm honored to share small pieces of his experience on these pages. (laughs) <laughs> and I imagine I've had the opportunity to interview Doug Peacock a couple of times. It's not been on the phone. I haven't met him in person. Mm-hmm. But from his books and from his experiences and people writing about him, I can I can imagine him being kind of a wild man. I, what, what was your experience of Doug Peacock? He is just uh, he's just a hoot. He's a crack up. And he's uh, when I first drove up to his house, um, I saw this this little eyes peeking out this window <laughs> and then they disappeared and I thought oh my god what am I getting into and uh but then he opened the door and he was just delightful he was very gracious we sat at a a big dining room table that had stacks of books all over it and uh and he is just um very uh, down to earth about 
the reality of the situation in which we live. Mm. And it's not the way he thinks we should be living, but it's what exists. Uh, he thinks we need to be much more thoughtful about how we actually live on this earth and take care of this earth. Um, but he also is uh, willing to... Um, acknowledge that you can't fight it all the time, mm-hmm. that you need to enjoy what we have and uh, do your best to try to get people to appreciate it, take care of it, conserve it, but um, that you can't spend all of your time fighting. And he strikes me, uh, you know, again, uh, not firsthand, you've had firsthand experience, as being authentic, Right, I would um, say that true to himself, and that's mm-hmm. the, the, I guess that's part of what you're talking about, right? With your howl, mm-hmm. being true to yourself, finding yourself, being true to yourself, right? I think that's a, a key piece of being a healthy, happy, healthy human. Mm-hmm. Now you, you seem to find yourself, uh, your authentic self, best in in the wild, or out in nature, or you know, on your bike and yes, out there, out there. Which is not totally unusual, but wouldn't describe everyone. No. Tell me about that. Well, and, and I have to add to that, I also find myself uh, on my couch <laughs> in, okay. with a book in hand. I mean, that's a quite lovely place to mm-hmm. be, too. And uh, I can explore different worlds that way, too. But there's just something, uh, again, you know, I can't, it's so difficult to put this into words, but to be in the outdoors and to have... This absence of human-made sound, um, it just is a way of connecting with what seems more important in life. And so it'd just be sounds of nature. wouldn't be any humans around. Right. And, of course, where I ride, I'm a roadie, so there are cars that will pass me and motorcycles and other cyclists and uh, all of that. So I'm not completely away, and I am not a— I'm not one to go out into the wilderness all by myself, that kind of thing. But just um, like I, I, as I describe uh, the places I like to go best, they're the closest thing to wild I can get an hour away on my bicycle. Mm-hmm. Let's take another break. When we come back, I want to talk about wild. You, at the, in your last chapter, you talk about wild and what it means to have wild places and the fact that maybe we don't need, you know, wilderness wild to, to have these experiences. We'll explore some of those issues I want to talk about being on the bicycle as well. I know a lot of people in our in our listening audience are avid cyclists, including you've had a serious accident. I think I've had a few. Yeah, which <laughs> I, that's a hazard. Yeah, it I'll, is. I'll hear. We'll hear about that as well. Uh, Susan Imhoff Bird is my guest, and her book is "Howl of Woman and Wolf." It's out from Tory House Press. More following the break. Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and the Chamber Music Society of Logan, presenting the 4A Quartet, featuring pieces by Mozart, Martineau, and 4A. Tuesday, November 10th, 7.30 at the USU Performance Hall. Information is at cmslogan.org. I'm Jeremy Hobson. How are students and graduates grappling with the burden of student loans? We'll hear from one graduate who ended up defaulting on hers. I don't think I even thought about what was going to happen to me later. I wasn't. I was just excited to begin that journey, and cost had no bearing on my going to college at all. That's next time on Here and Now. Join us Monday morning at 11 on Utah Public Radio. (laughs) 
Thanks for listening to Access U Time. Tom Williams, we've reached the last segment with Susan Bird. Her book is Howl of Woman and Wolf. At a crossroads in her own life, she shares her personal triumphs, her self-doubt, difficult scenes from her past, such as caring for a son with cerebral palsy, uh, a husband whose hidden layers have built up a barrier, a long, dark night of pain while recovering from a severe bicycle accident, and she goes in search of the wolf. And uh, the book is called Howl for a Reason. We've been talking about that. Susan Bird has, uh, has been perfecting her own howl, which she says is getting to her own authentic self and suggest that for us as well. You can reach us in the program, participate at 1-800-826-1495 or upraxis at gmail.com. And we're on Twitter, at Utah Public Radio. Let's talk a little bit about wilderness and wild. Um, and, and you have a whole discussion of this in your in your last uh, last chapter. Right. Um, what have you talked about? Our need for wild places? Right, and uh, some people suggest that... Um we can find wild in pots of plants on our balcony if we live in Manhattan. You know, that, but we need some kind of access to what is somewhat wild. But that can be in all different kinds of levels, and it doesn't mm. necessarily need to be pure wilderness. Uh, what do we get from wilderness then? <sighs> as far as... Um, you know, personally, what, what, I, why, why do we need it? Why do we need it? I think that um, it it helps us understand our place in the world, that um, we are not the master of it all. And when we're out in wilderness, we see what has been uh, growing and thriving for millennia without us. Mm. And so I think that it, it's humbling, but I, I think it helps us really kind of ground ourselves into we are just one small little aspect of what's going on. Mm. And you also talk about, and you quote some people, talking about the just the fact of wilderness Oh, that, that can, can be restorative for us or helpful for exactly. us. Exactly. Just to know that these places exist, even if we're not able to travel to them. Mm-hmm. Many people aren't able to travel for financial reasons or physical reasons. And, and to just know that there's a Grand Canyon out there is sometimes enough to really do the same thing for us as standing in uh, the Sequoia Forest. Mm -hmm. Where do wolves fit into that then? Well, for me, it's they are definitely a part of what is wild and created by something much more powerful than me. Mm -hmm. And yet we share a connection. Mm -hmm. You know, we all are here. We right. all have a right to be here, and yet I'm not in charge. And it's kind of a wonderful, as I said, humbling thing, but makes me feel part of something much bigger than me. Uh, there's a passage in the book, um, kind of grossed me out a little bit, but uh, <laughs> but and you juxtapose you juxtapose a scene of uh, you could call it death, the, the ending of your first marriage, I think, and then immediately you go to the Department of Transportation, and they're they're collecting carcasses. <laughs> Tell me about that. The bone pile there? The bone pile, the, yes. The, the, um, I didn't know this went on. Yeah. Well, this is actually part of this. It's a fabulous uh, coalition up there of state and federal agencies and community who are working together to try to um, help ranchers continue to exist when we're adding more predators to their environment. And so um, it's like a communal bone pile that the... the the coalition will come out and pick up your dead animal for you because when um, if your dog dies, it's not so hard to 
bury him on your property. But um, when you lose a 500-pound bull, <laughs> it's not easy to um, d- deal with that carcass, and it can cost hundreds of dollars to have someone come pick that up. So this coalition has worked together to um, work with the Department of Transportation to pick up dead animals from your property, whether they are wildlife that have been killed by a car and landed on your field or a cow that keeled over from illness on your own property. So they compost these animals in this nice little area mm-hmm. off the main highway. And, uh, yeah, it, it's um, it's not something you see very often. Uh, and uh, and uh, <laughs> I, I do think we... As a society, we 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 like to hold death at arm's length. This is so this, right. this coalition there, right. and of course, if you're a rancher or if you're a conservationist or if you're a park ranger, you're you're more familiar with this. Right, right. But it was a little shocking for me to watch this heifer uh, be rolled out from the back of this truck and then hauled over into a little bin where they covered it with compost, and mm. then they'll stir it up every three months. <laughs> yeah. Some people don't. I guess they don't subscribe to this. They want to take care of their animal a different different way. Well, kind they, of more memorialize them. I I did hear, right, one story of a a woman who's a rancher in that valley who does not participate, and she likes to keep her animals there on her own property because she calls them family, Mm -hmm. and that's her way of honoring them. Yeah. So it's somewhat jarring to now ask you to talk about your son, Jake, but but it's all, I I think it's it's a bit apropos because what you're talking about is we're we're part of nature, right? right? And in civilization, we separate ourselves. Right. What if you talk about that? The difficulty is all throughout his life, and then finally, he gets to a point where he's he's failing, right? Right. Um, it was uh, when he was little. Uh, doctors hate to give um, really negative news when they're not certain. And with brain damage in a baby, it can just go so many different ways. The brain is just an, an incredible, incredible thing that can recover from a huge damage. But, um, so they didn't want to say your son will never do anything. But, um, by the time he was a year and a half, two years old, it was quite clear that he was not going to be able to do much of anything. And, uh, so at that point, a doctor had told us that kids as severely challenged as Jake usually didn't make it out of their teens. So we kind of had a heads up that it would be unlikely for him to live a really long time. And it's usually pneumonia that takes him. He had severe scoliosis that can uh, compromised his lungs, uh, but he couldn't walk, talk, communicate, make eye contact. He had a feeding tube and a seizure disorder and mm. a lot of things that made it um, challenging to care for. But yet he his nature was just a very sweet, sweet boy who just couldn't communicate with us. Mm. So you have this ritual that we we had you read at the mm-hmm. beginning of the the book. You mm-hmm. ride up into the the mountains. Mm-hmm. You and you really. I don't know if every year releases ashes, but uh, um, I, I I take his ashes with me everywhere mm-hmm. uh, when I ride. <laughs> uh, so what what are you what are you doing there then? What uh, what how does that help you? How does that help? I guess you remember him and I do, and it just feels uh, like I'm. I he knows I'm there, and. Uh, and just returning some of his ashes each time to back to the soil just feels like a way of um, acknowledging that we're all just part of this earth. We're all in it together, and and it just uh, helps me helps me feel 
a connection to him when he's no longer here. Mm. Overall, what what kind of healing happened to you in the process of researching wolves and going through this whole journey? I think the the most important thing for me was, um, as I've kind of already mentioned, just that coming to an understanding that I get to be me. And, uh, and this is not just about me. It's about everybody. You know, we all get to be who we are. And, um, and I, I, it's really powerful for me to watch the wolves. Um, there was a time I went back to Yellowstone in the winter and had a wolf, had two wolves actually come within 40 feet of me trotting, running by on their way to a carcass. And, uh, and they're not out to do anything other than to play their play their role in the world, which is as a predator and to and uh, it's an important role in the environment. And I think we all need to respect that and to understand that of ourselves that we might not understand why we're here, but there probably is a purpose, mm-hmm. and that we need to honor and acknowledge who we are and be that person and contribute in whatever way that is to the world. Having gone through your journey, how would you suggest others, perhaps looking for themselves or want to reconnect? Uh, you know, not everybody's going to go write a book about wolves. <laughs> right, um, right. Uh, how, how to go about that? Um, I truly believe that getting out into nature is, is going to be beneficial to anyone at any point in their path. And whether it's um, walking in a city park or traveling a shoreline trail or, um, you know, a mi- there are plenty of mild trails in the canyons that I think most people are able to access. And, uh, or walking through your field, you know, or your backyard, or putting your hands in the soil. or But somehow connecting to that helps us, I think, have a deeper understanding of this bigger-than-us world. We just have a couple minutes left. I want to... S- cycle back, I guess now, pun intended, now that I recognize that, to cycling. Uh-huh. Um, you've had some serious accidents. I have. The, 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 back on the bike, syndicates <laughs> yes. your passion for, right. for, this, for this activity. What do, you, what do you get out of it? Um, I was actually thinking about that on my drive up here this morning because uh, I have done the Logan to Jackson ride a number of times, which starts right here in Logan. Mm-hmm. And so this town to me is where you bring your bike and then you go ride somewhere else. There's lots of other wonderful rides that are based here in Logan that I've done too. And um, I think what was really powerful for me, especially with that first ride, was a 200-mile ride and I made it. I survived. I was capable of more than I thought I was. And that's what cycling does for me. It, it lets me know I can do more than I thought I could. Because climbing those hills is hard, you know. But then you get up to the top and you go, oh, my gosh, I did it. I am stronger than I knew. Mm. You have, uh, you have a, a blog, a website about this, the Tao of Cycling, is it? Yes. Yeah, very good, very good. Uh, so we've been talking about wolves, and on your blog, which you can find at susanimhoffbird.com, uh, you you recommend five exceptional books about wolves. Yes. I don't know if you have those top of your head, or you could recommend one or two. or Most of them. Um, Rick McIntyre is a wildlife technician at Yellowstone, and he probably knows more about wolves than anyone, and he is out there basically 365 days a year. He's in communication with uh, wolf watchers throughout the park. 
Anyway, his book is called The Society of Wolves, and it is fabulous. He's also a photographer, so it's full of his photography. And it's just a really excellent primer on understanding wolves and then the history and then their nature and uh, the current state. So that's a fabulous one. And then the the classic is, of course, Barry Lopez's mm, right. Of Wolves and Men. Yeah, that's a wonderful book. And you get the whole list. Uh, go to susanimhoffbird.com. Uh, also, there's five creative nonfiction books worth every minute you should spend with them. You're, you're a list maker. Like I said, <laughs> I, I like that. So you can find you can find these lists. Uh, also, five illuminative books on how to be and five best ever books. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we'll just leave the mystery and have people go to the website. Uh, it's been a pleasure. Thank you so much. Thank you. We've been talking with Susan Bird. Uh, her book is out from Tory House Press, Howl of Woman and Wolf. And uh, thanks for uh, joining us today. We hope you'll join us tomorrow for Access Utah. Utah Public Radio has partnered with the Salt Lake Tribune to form the Utah Public Insight Network. And we want to know how you feel about the LDS Church announcing that Mormons who enter into same-sex unions will be considered apostates, and now their children will be barred from blessings and baptism rituals without the permission of the faith's highest leader. By going to our website at upr.org, you can become a source. You'll have the chance to add your voice to this story and drive our news coverage. Details at upr.org. Welcome to Wild About Utah, a Utah Public Radio production featuring contributors who share a love of nature, preservation, and education. Biking seven miles daily from Smithfield Canyon to USU campus combined with an early AM run, I'm well aware of the drop in temperatures, as are those of us who find themselves outdoors on a more permanent schedule. I'm speaking of our relatives who reside in the wild, birds, trees, raccoons, and such. While I put on an extra layer or two, plants and animals have far more sophisticated adaptations from behavioral to physiological to structural. We are all aware of the marvelous migration and hibernation behaviors, so let's add a few more amazing adaptations to the list. I'll begin with a bird that is very common at our winter feeder, the dark-eyed junco which responds to the first shortening of days of summer with a series of physical changes. Its reproductive organs become inactive and shrink in size. Hormones stimulate the rapid growth of a new set of feathers, and fat deposits develop to provide fuel for the long migratory flight ahead. Thus, the preparation for migration starts as soon as the days begin to shorten, and the process must operate in reverse when the bird is in its winter habitat in the United States. As soon as days begin to lengthen, the dark-eyed junco must gear up physically for the flight north and breeding season. If it fails to do so, it is likely it won't survive the long-distance migration. So the cycle of life and its related migrations and transitions are deeply connected to the heavens. Plants are no less amazing. Those in temperate zones must also set their calendars in order to flower and for deciduous species, develop and drop leaves at optimal times. Plants set their internal calendars using several attributes from the sunlight they receive. In fact, the angle of the sun may be more important to a plant than the day length. That's because plants produce compounds called phytochromes in response to different portions of the light spectrum. Direct sunlight is higher in red light, while indirect sunlight contains more far red light. During late fall and early winter, when the sun remains low in the southern sky, the indirect light produces an increase in far-red phytochromes. 
As spring approaches and the arc of sun rises in the sky, direct sunlight triggers production of red phytochromes. The ratio of these two compounds mediate the hormones involved in flowering, leaf drop, and bud development. Even seeds below the soil are affected. The amount of red and far-red light that penetrates the soil is sufficient to govern germination. Some behavioral alterations worth mentioning beyond migrating and hibernation are herding and flocking, huddling in to share body warmth, dietary change, hair and feather change, both color and structure, and many more, but my radio time is ending. So now it's your turn to explore more. It really does make you appreciate the wonders of nature. This is Jack Green from Wild About Utah. Wild About Utah is a production of Utah Public Radio. For transcripts and archived audio of Wild About Utah, go online to upr.org and click on the Wild About Utah link. Hey, I'm Tom Power. From classified military bases to secret prisons, Trevor Paglin makes art out of things that governments don't want you to see. Next time on Q, I'll chat with the photographer about putting hidden places in plain view. It's coming up on Q from PRI, Public Radio International. Join us Monday afternoon at 1 on Utah Public Radio. Donate your classic car to Utah Public Radio. We'll ensure that it's treated with care and returns maximum benefits to the station. Donating is easy. Just call 877-877-7501 or donate securely online at upr.org. We'll take care of everything. If you're interested about the donation process for a classic car, call us at 877-877-7501 or contact us online at upr.org. This is Utah Public Radio, KUSR HD1 Logan, KUSK HD1 Vernal, KUSL HD1 Richfield, KUST HD1 Moab, KCEU Price, and KUSU FM HD1 Logan.